0: This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow The Gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, November 12th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When asked about an altered tape of Jim Acosta and the intern that the White House press secretary had tweeted out, White House advisor Kellyanne Conway... These words to say to Chris Wallace of Fox that, to make it, sped it look speeded up to make it look pardon oh well that's not altered that's sped up they do it all the time in sports to see if there's actually a first down or a touchdown one altered means changed and sped up means changed to appear faster sped up is altered two let us talk about how often they really do use the speed it up feature in sports. Sure, who could remember this game-changing sequence from a few years back in the NFL? Russell Wilson keeps, throws on the run, end zone, and did he come up clean?
1: Braylon Edwards, dome forward, touchdown Seahawks!
0: Wait, wait, was that a legal catch? Let's go back and watch it on the video. Russell Wilson keeps, throws on the run, end zone, and did he come up clean? Braylon Edwards, dome forward, touchdown Seahawks! You know, that is, uh, that is sped up double speed. I gotta say, it, it almost makes it harder to discern if the receiver's hands were actually under it. Maybe if we slowed it down, because I think we usually slow it down. Oh no, I'm, I'm told. Hold on. I'm told we have an angle from four times speed. Russell, listen, on the right zone, come up, well, that tells us almost nothing. I do not know why we are going for the sped-up replay after years of the slow-motion replay. Okay, I'm told the referees now have a ruling. After reviews, the ball hit the ground before the receiver got control. It's an incomplete pass. It'll make a and 10 on the 13 on the left half mark. I cannot believe that call. I think that is a terrible call. Let's get Mike Pereira in here. Mike, please slowly explain to me what the referee was thinking. All right, that is it. I am at a loss. I find this confusing and frankly misleading. And what is that? I'm being told that I have had my hard pass revoked from covering future games. Great job, NFL. Now, the two-minute warning is upon us. Let us pause to honor our veterans with this stirring anthem. On the show today, I spiel about how aggressive and progressive Democrats should be. So progressive... Make lots of progress, I say. I endorse progress. But first, for the last couple of weeks, there has been a captivating, beautiful, sprawling documentary on ESPN. It is about everything basketball, from minutia to the greatest plays to explanations of iconic moments to the unearthings of findings that you never even thought to look for. Dan Clarez produced the documentary called Basketball, a Love Story, and he dropped by to discuss it. Basketball is my favorite sport, you know, the way they dribble up and down the court. But it's not just the dribble, it's it's Wes Unseld's outlet passes, and it's Allen Iverson's crossover, and it's Peach Baskets, and it's Diana Taurasi's release, and it is, in fact, in the imagining of Dan Clarez, a love story. Basketball, a love story, is essentially what Ken Burns did for baseball, Dan Clarez is doing for basketball, but I think... In a much better and less stodgy way, it's on ESPN. Dan Cloris is here. Dan, you're shaking your head? You don't like the comparison? Absolutely,
1: thank you. No, yeah. I don't like the comparison. I like Ken Burns a lot, but it's the exact opposite. And that's what I set out to do. I mean, I, I, uh, about five years ago when I started, this is, this is not chronological. It's not linear. It doesn't pretend to be a history. It's not a series of uh, mini biographies on individuals or events. It's 62 short stories, even folk stories. Each one, which covers the entire gamut of the game from NBA, ABA, Olympics, international, women, politics, race, business, is a love story because each one reflects the complicated nature of love. It's about joy and wonder and embrace, and it's about loss and disappointment and even betrayal. Nothing to do <laughs> with Burns' series on baseball. The
0: opposite. Well, this is what I thought when upon watching it. At the end of each, you get a picture. You get through the lens of one man a lover of the game a picture of the sport and i think the picture of the sport in fact reflects the sport because we could put burns aside but nine innings and black and white films and sepia tones and kind of received knowledge and this was supposed to be the canon and i thought it was flawed and it didn't take into account peds and a whole bunch of other things but yours you know in a basketball game is it really a 48 minute games or just a series of you know four minute chunks between timeouts And that's what it is. And also, basketball is not so structured and hidebound as a sport like baseball. And it embraces the creativity and the nuance and the fact that the sport has allowed itself to zig and zag because there's no really top-down definition of what is right in basketball versus what works in basketball. I get the impression from your documentary, I I think I get it's a good referendum and a true referendum through your eyes on the sport of basketball.
1: I think that's true. Uh, I, I think one thing about basketball that has never changed is that it's a very simple game. Yeah. There's a ball and a basket, and your job is to devise ways to make easier baskets or to stop people from making baskets. That has never changed, no matter what rules are put in, no matter what innovation, no matter what stunning athleticism no matter what, you can ask the question, which I do in the film, one of my stories is on a genius gene. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that certain players, a Russell or a Jordan, they are born with a genius gene or they develop this skill? I mean, but that the simplicity of the game has never changed. Or nor has the complexity
0: so I would say that Dr. Jack Ramsey and Riley, they're probably geniuses in, in a conventional definition. I mean, they see a scheme and they execute the scheme and it's, they see something no one's ever seen. And as you detail, Bill Russell is his own kind of genius. But tell me about Alan Iverson. I think, well, he's a genius in terms of his actions and he understands his actions. He understands his physicality. And yet I don't think most people who've seen him interviewed or maybe have gotten the caricature of him would think of him as a genius.
1: Here's what I learned. Which you sort of knew when you were a kid in the park you remember you remember you had friends that they were terrible in school, right yeah, but man were they smart players, yeah you know yeah, like what that was something you 're born with, right yes, most of these people that I interviewed, very much including yeah. Iverson. As imperfect as all of us, certainly as imperfect as I am, his understanding of the game is is on a whole other level. Yes. Now, his flaws in his game, which were significant, got in his way, but- I don't know about genius, but I know he was an immensely, immensely, immensely educated basketball player.
0: And I do think because so many of his specific skills look like an explosion of raw talent or raw athleticism, we tend to discount the the mental acuity that goes into it. And, and But but I think we tend to do that a lot, uh, and
1: I think there's an element of, of racialism in that also, but... Iverson. I have four scenes called signature moves, where guys talk about their hands, hips, eyes, uh, knees, mind, and and their signature moves. You, you 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 alluded to that. So Iverson on the crossover, that was a combination of his absolute creativity. Creativity is an expression of the mind, is it yeah, not? Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 there he is breaking down the defender.
0: Right. And and then. Not giving a shit. Yeah. Not giving a shit. And there's a lot of ballet in there. And so if we call Balanchine a genius, why not Iverson? That's one of my points. Yeah. That's one of my points. And Iverson at the end
1: of the film is classic because like, you know, before each interview, at the end, I had everyone hold a ball, no matter where we went in the country. I said, do what you want. Spin it, hold it, kiss it, you know, smile. And it really works. It's the last three and a half minutes in and in, in, in credits. And Iverson is the next last guy we go to. And he's wearing that, you know, that military bullshit you know hat yeah yeah like camo yeah yeah, right you know (laughs) and and he and he says great he's great he goes man this shit got way heavier than basketball
0: Tell me about – tell me if I'm right that so many of the, of the interviews with these iconic guys, I saw the seeds of that in your 30 for 30 winning time and what you got out of Reggie Miller, which might not be hard. He's an extrovert, but it was the best series of interviews, man on a camera, guy in a, a hotel room or a nice backdrop wearing a suit. being absolutely transported to his playing days. Do we see that in this documentary? Oh, absolutely.
1: I think that people really open up. I mean, the revelations in this film from 166 people are stunning, and many of them are humorous. Many of them are heartbreaking, an awful lot of tender. I mean, but, I mean, you know, people don't remember that the Olympic team was amateurs. They were not supposed to be paid. I got Charlie Scott and Spencer Haywood talking about 68 Olympics, getting $1,500 in cash from a new sneaker company everyone on the team called Adidas, you know, wear my sneakers, and they hung the company and, and what a converse, you know. Other than that, I mean, uh, like, you know, they did a film on HBO about Kareem, right? Yeah, And the big, th- you know, battle against Houston, 1968. And, you know, film is, they did a film on Kareem, right? So, but when I interview Elvin Hayes,
0: Who's this the was, Who's the Cougar Center, right. Houston Astrodome? And it was that was all the Al Alcindor. That's right.
1: Yeah. That was the rivalry. Number one team in the country versus number two team. Hayes had beaten, had broken the UCLA streak, dominating Alcindor earlier. Now in the rematch, Alcindor beats him. This is not in the in in the film that Kareem did on on himself. Elvin Hayes reveals because I said what did you what do you and Kareem ever talk about after that he says we've never spoken what we've never spoken since 1968 he says and we've been in the same locker room competed against each other we've been on the same all star team he says this in my movie he says he says he's never spoken to me so I've never spoken to him and what am I going to say anyway have a good
0: game I don't want him to have a fucking good game (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) There's so much
1: stuff like
0: that, you know? So here's the one thing. I give the NBA especially, yeah, not so much college. So I give the NBA so much credit for keeping up with the zeitgeist of America, so much more than the other sports. Do you think it's inevitable with the sport of basketball? And I ask because there were times when the NBA wasn't on the cutting edge.
1: No, it's not inevitable at all. It's leadership. It's absolute leadership. You know, Larry O'Brien was a very sophisticated uh, individual, but he, he didn't know much about, um, basketball and he certainly didn't know anything about marketing. He may have thought he did, you know, but he didn't. And he was a good man. And his general counsel was David Stern, uh, a very tough uh, leader, right? But absolutely brilliant. He, and When he took, when he was running things, even in the late 70s, before he became the official commissioner in 83, that's when the NBA was in the balls of his ass. I mean, uh, very, very much drug uh, problems. Uh, Being accused of having too many blacks in the league. Low TV ratings. Overexposure on television. Madison Avenue had shut down. No one wanted to have anything to do with it. Uh, So people simplify things. Oh, well, you did it because Bird and Magic. No. And that's not – and the film goes way deeper than that. No. You did it because you had a concerted, creative, new message to Madison Avenue that Rick Welts helped you sell, that you cut down the air dates. You cut down how many times you're on TV. You didn't take any shit from anyone. This guy's playing if he's black, we don't care mm-hmm. right and 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 then you got lucky, and you had you got bird and magic but but you know, to me, luck is part of life, but if you
0: you got to use it, there would be leaders that wouldn't know what to do with it. This is one thing that I think about basketball. love the sport. Is there something? That is there, is it a demerit? Is it something that gives you pause that the exemplars of this sport we love pretty much are only called from the top, you know, 0.1% of the population in terms of this one physical attribute height that unless you are so off the charts, you don't really, um, and that is unlike other sports. You don't have a chance to be great. There are exceptions. We call tiny archibald tiny six feet tall.
1: Yeah. And no, it, it, another very good question, and um, uh, it, it, it's true. I just talked about my son. You know, he's five ten. He's at Columbia, and you know that's that's an issue. You know, Ivy League is tough now. Yeah. But having said that, I made a scene called "Little Big Men" in the movie. What it means to be a little man. What are the challenges? How do you overcome it? And that evolved because I was interested. I asked almost every guard I interviewed, tell me about the paint. So when they tell me about the paint, that's how that evolved. So that story is about Tiny, Cousy, all in the film, Lenny Wilkins, Chris Paul, Iverson, Steve Nash, about Calvin Murphy, about that issue. Calvin Murphy says... I didn't know. I was short until I read about it. And he <laughs> averaged 37 a game in college. Niagara, right? Yes, and yeah. in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Goes to Niagara. It's in the film. He grows up in Connecticut. This is funny. There's another revelation. He's the national baton twirling champion.
0: I love stuff like that.
1: And <laughs> so he's being recruited. So Niagara promises him, if you come to here, like, what's he ended up in Niagara for? We'll get you gigs Twirling the baton at halftime in the Buffalo Bills games, and oh that's what God. they did, and I
0: got the footage. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny what you think will be an inducement. He goes to Niagara because of the baton, and and uh, Bill Russell refuses a girl in every hotel room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to yeah. know your audience. <laughs> you got to know your audience.
1: But the, but the little big men, it's an issue. You should hear what these guys say. I mean, and, you know, uh, Phil Ford his first practice at North Carolina, Roy Williams was the assistant to Dean and, uh, and they have to do the mile in less than six minutes. And Phil Ford is struggling and he head first slides to the finish line on concrete. And Roy Williams says, well, we're never taking him out of the game.
0: Yeah. You know? Oh, God. That's so good. <laughs> so who wasn't in the film, who might not be the guy that we would say, well, of course you'd want him in the film. He's on Mount Rushmore. But not an obscure player, Well, I'll tell you someone, who yeah.
1: was disappointing that I couldn't get. and Because and, uh, I love him to death. And I have a lot about him in the film. Ton of footage. People talking about him. But I oh, my God, I'm a giant Mono Ginobili fan, you know, and and, uh, his agent in Chicago, and they were very nice, and I couldn't get him. And and I'll tell you why I want him for so much. I mean, I remember when the Knicks got Carmelo, and I would say to friends, they should have got Ginobili, and people would look at me, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Give me a break, you know. (laughs) But what hit me about Ginobili, go back to images. When Argentina beats the U.S. in the 2004 Olympics, right? And they interview Ginobili on American TV afterwards, and some guy asks him, which the typical, what I thought was a silly question. Well, now that you've won an NBA title and you've won a gold medal, which is more, which is which do you like better? I mean, what a silly question, right? So he looks at him, and I never forgot this. And he says, "Well, NBA title is nice, but this, this is for my country. I love that, <laughs> and I realize." This is a real thinker.
0: Mm-hmm. Look, we could go d- go on we'll forever. Go. Uh, this is the case when you're talking about something you love, basketball, love story. It airs on ESPN, but the way to access it is through the app and online. And you could imbibe it uh, straightforward in little chunks. It's very, very much uh, in line with how we consume media in 2018. Dan Clores put it all together it is a monument to a great sport, told through a very keen set of eyes. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And there's a book, Jackie McMullen
1: and Rafe Bartholomew, Basketball Love Story. It's a great book, and oral history of the game. Thank you for the interviews. Oral
0: history of basketball love story. Thank, Thank you. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you for having me, man.
0: Now the spiel, the question of centrism versus progressivism as the optimal stance to win the hearts and therefore the votes of the electorate in 2020 has taken on an all-consuming importance. Very little can be learned from 2018, unfortunately, because the results were a bit ambivalent, though not as much as partisans would have you believe, but mostly because it is impossible to separate the proclivities Or as it's trendy now to say, the priors of the pundits who are offering you wisdom, meaning the more centrist you are, the more you think that some form of centrism won the day. And the more progressive you are, the more you think, well, Tuesday shows, you got to get out there and be progressive. Complicating this equation are two facts. One, no one really knows exactly what the terms mean, centrism and progressive. That's a little complicating. And the other one is that all the candidates that people are pointing to as embodying either one or the other of those ideologies don't really embody them fully. Should the party tack left or hard left, it's basically become a Rorschach test. But with all that said, I will offer a couple of helpful lessons and guesses. And I will also disclose my leanings. So I'm all for progress. Love me some progress. But am I, quote unquote, progressive? Let's see. I do not say I am a socialist, and I will tell you why. I am not a socialist. Uh, We had the head of the socialists in here. I did not get a great definition of what the socialists meant. I just said to myself, I don't think I'm one of those. There are a couple of maybe more solid policy areas that progressives are endorsing these days, and those are Medicare for all and abolish ICE and impeach Trump. So Medicare for all, that is the left's repeal and replace abolish ICE, that is the left's audit the Fed and impeach Trump, I'd say right now at this stage, that is the left's lock her up. I will concede on point three, there's going to be some Mueller findings and locking him up or at least impeaching him might one day become the right choice. But my criticism is publicly advocating that now is definitely being ahead of the facts. So I guess all that add it all up, it makes me a centrist, right? And yes, I do have to say, I think centrists did well on Tuesday and the party will do well to endorse centrists in key races. So again, evaluate that as you will. Maybe it's my biases motivating my reasoning, but there's also this part. I am right. I am right about this. So the three big progressives on the tickets, uh, all lost on election day, Gillum, Abrams, O'Rourke. It's possible that a couple of them might not lose after Election Day, but it's unlikely. They'll all probably stay as close but no cigars. So that means progressivism lost, right? Well, no. Pod Save America says, look at those three candidates. It shows that progressives did great. There was a lot of criticism from the cynical reporter saying, why did you nominate these these liberals, these died in the wool progressives in these conservative states? Those liberals did better than all of the centrist vanilla candidates we have run in those states in recent years. And they did better with independence. They were able. So after Dan Pfeiffer said that, which I think is all true, John Favreau said
1: this. We're going to see more of this as we get closer to 2020. There's going to be all this punditry. It's all, they all base it on ideology. All they can think about is someone centrist or someone left. Someone two in the middle or two. in the... And it's all garbage. Like, look for the candidate who you, you're in your gut, tells you, will inspire a movement of Americans from all walks of life to get out there, work their asses off and go to the polls. Look for that candidate.
0: Well, The left versus centrist take, it's a little inaccurate when it comes to a couple of the candidates. Beto did not endorse abolish ICE. Gillum said abolish ICE as it is, but he's not saying abolish ICE. He's basically saying, you know, change it to be better, which is what we should do with all government programs. And when Stacey Abrams was the leader of the Democrats in the Georgia House, she was a deal-cutting pragmatist. But most important is this. When Favreau is supporting, hey, we should endorse transcendent, charismatic, Oratorically gifted candidates? Well, duh. Who says, nah, bring back the boring ones? That's the path to success. What the Pod Save America crew isn't saying, and I'm not going to say what they won't tell you or what they don't realize. I think they know this full well. But left unsaid in all of that advice is this. If you're running for governor or senator, you can get the coverage so people can find out that you're a great speaker or charismatic. But when it comes to a House candidate, it's a lot, lot harder. In the very markets that we're covering, say, Beto O'Rourke extensively in Dallas or Houston, there are sometimes four or five candidates running in those markets. I live in New York City. If you add all the different states that the New York City market covers, my God, you've got 30 people running for Congress. It's very hard to let your constituency know exactly how charismatic you are if you're running from Congress under those circumstances. So in those cases, in the cases of running for a House seat, a district should definitely go with someone whose stances align with that district, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a super fit for Queens in the Bronx, but she don't work great in Pennsylvania 8 or most other places. So enter the DCCC, which progressive groups will tell you stands for desultory, cautious, callow conservatives. It's not. It's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and they tend to trend less left than Bernie and the Bernie groups. They tend to trend less left than any self proclaimed socialists or the kind of candidates that are endorsed by places like Think Progress or The Intercept or The Nation magazine. Now, I mentioned The Intercept because on this show, we talked about a big expose they did about how the DCCC was turning their back on this one activist in in Colorado, and it turns out they had a secret recording of Steny Hoyer saying, yeah, we're going to back the other guy. Well, guess what? The other guy won. He won quite well. Doesn't mean that the candidate, that The Intercept was all aggrieved on behalf of wouldn't have won, but he didn't. The other guy did. Fine, one data point. Let's look at this article in the Nation, written about the time when the primaries hadn't even happened in most places. It was called "When the DCCC Calls Hang Up." Unclear if the message was to voters uh, when they when you get a robocall from the DCCC, or if you're a candidate and the DCCC calls you because an article of faith in all these articles, is that the DCCC doesn't just back centrists, they back losers. They have a terrible track record. It was asserted. I tried very hard to see if this was true before the election. Hard to get great evidence, but the evidence is in with this election. So if you listen to The Nation, they were warning all these DCCC candidates were going to blow it in winnable elections. I'll read some of this article. They were championing a Pennsylvania activist named Jess King, who was finding it hard to get the backing of the establishment. Jess King saw Emily's List, former Governor Ed Rendell and the party establishment back her primary opponent. Well, she actually did wind up winning the endorsement, but she lost the election by 17 points. Nation continues. In New Hampshire, in the race to succeed retiring Democratic representative Carol Shea Porter, the DCCC started robocalling to poll support for Chris Pappas back in November, even though he had not yet formally announced his candidacy. Well, let us cut to DCCC-backed candidate Chris Pappas on election day. So thank you. Thank you for joining us here tonight to celebrate this great victory. Again, in Virginia's 2nd District, the DCCC is backing former Republican Elaine Loria. By the way, former Republican, a particularly unforgivable sin to The Nation magazine and their ilk. Well, here's Elaine Lauria on Election Day. Voters, you went to the polls and you did this. In Nebraska, the nation continues, the DCCC is backing Brad Ashford another former Republican who served a term in the House after switching parties. Well, in this case, Brad Ashford lost. The DCCC candidate lost. Instead, the more progressive Kara Eastman won. And when it came time for the general election, Kara Eastman lost. In fact, Kara Eastman lost to the incumbent Republican by more than Brad Ashford had in 2016. In this article, every Democrat who is mentioned as unfairly not getting DCCC backing, went on to lose the general election. That's just one article. I got a bunch of them, but we did the math, Pierre, Daniel, and me. Ballotopedia listed 33 races where the DCCC picked or endorsed a candidate. They also listed uh, what other candidates were endorsed and who won that actual primary and who won the election. In the 33 races where the DCCC got in, they won 18 of them. 18 of those, sometimes in very Republican-leaning districts, sometimes against Republican incumbents, 18 of those DCCC candidates will be headed to Congress. There were two cases where a candidate other than the DCCC back candidate won the primary, and they both lost the general election. So by all means, if you have a superstar, let him or her shine. But if you have a congressional seat and you want to win the House... Rather than win a bunch of kudos from the Nation and in the Intercept, maybe trust the DCCC. I mean, it is so tepid. It is so uncool. It is so establishment and successful. They were also really quite successful. And that's it for today's show. PRB and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They both received the backing of the DCCC, which is... Delaware County Community College. Go Phantoms! Or maybe they have gone. So hard to tell with Phantoms. TJ Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcast. She's a big believer in the C-triple-D, the Center for Data-Driven Discovery. So, TJ. The gist. The suit I'm wearing has not been altered. It's just been taken in a little at the waist, and the sleeves are somewhat lengthened, and it is festooned with some quite heavy clasps and buckled, okay, it's a straight jacket. I'm wearing a straight jacket. Kellyanne Conway put me in a straight jacket. I hope you're happy. The Bowling Green Massacre has claimed its last victim. Boom, Peru, de Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.